Hi, everyone. Anne Hawley here. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to let listeners know about StoryGrid Live, a gathering of writers serious about the craft of story, happening September 13th and 14th, 2019, in Nashville, Tennessee. StoryGrid has grown into a movement followed by tens of thousands of writers from all over the globe who are serious about their craft. This weekend event will be full of information, inspiration, and expertise, along with some food, fun, and nerdery with your fellow StoryGridders. StoryGrid Live 2019 is the place to be for writers looking to deepen and grow their expertise in the craft of storytelling. It's time to step out of your routine to spend two days alongside other writers and storytellers like you. This is a chance to not only learn, but to connect with other amazing writers. Sean Coyne and Tim Grawl will be presenting, along with special guest Stephen Pressfield. All the roundtablers will be there, too, and we hope to see you. Find out more at storygrid.com slash live. That's storygrid.com slash live. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Now, unfortunately, Like Water for Chocolate isn't available for streaming here in Canada, so I haven't seen it since its original release. We searched high and low for a digital copy, but it wasn't to be found. Since there wasn't enough time to order a physical copy or read the novel, I am totally flying blind in this episode. However, my fellow roundtablers, who also served as tech support this week, have in fact watched the film. Welcome Jari Bolander, Kim Kessler, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an excellent example of a significant story principle, and the rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. This week, Anne pitched Like Water for Chocolate as the third title in her season five study of films adapted from novels. This 1992 Mexican film was directed by Alfonso Arau and based on the 1989 novel of the same name by Lara Esquivel, who also wrote the screenplay. And just a kind reminder that this is an adult conversation and you might hear some adult words. Anne is going to start us off with a brief summary of the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff to help orient us to the story. Anne? Well, this story has a clear four-act structure as far as I can tell, so I'm gonna, I'm, that's my stand and I'm going to stick with it. It has two separate crises in the middle build, so what you're going to hear is the beginning hook, two middle build sections, and the ending payoff. The beginning hook and the ending payoff are relatively short for a story math that goes something like 20% beginning hook, 65% middle build, and 15% ending payoff. So here we go. In the beginning hook, when family tradition prohibits Tita and Pedro from marrying, and Pedro agrees to marry older sister Rosaura so he can be near Tita, Tita is punished for her inappropriate love by being forced to prepare the wedding feast. But when Tita's cooking mentor, Nacha, dies on the wedding day, Tita must decide whether to live on as her cruel mother's handmaiden or exercise her new magical power in food preparation as the ranch's cook. She accepts the position and her cooking magic frees middle sister, Hertrudis, who escapes the family. In what I'm calling Act 2, the first part of the middle build, when Tita takes over the care and feeding of Pedro and Rosaura's first child, causing Pedro to fall even more deeply in love with her. Mama Elena, the cruel mother, sends Pedro and his family away, depriving Tita of her one joy in life. When news comes that the baby has died and Tita goes mad with grief, the doctor, John Brown, takes her to his home to help her recover, and Tita must decide whether to accept his growing love for her or cling to her hopeless love for Pedro. She accepts John's love, recovers, and goes home to await her wedding. In Act 3, the second half of the middle build, when Mama Elena's death brings Pedro and Rosaura home, Dita's cooking magically exacerbates Rosaura's health problems, and her second child is born prematurely. 
Pedro and Tita finally consummate their love, and Tita becomes pregnant. But when the pregnancy ends in miscarriage, she must still decide whether to confess to John, her fiancé, or marry him with such a secret between them. She confesses, and though he wants to marry her anyway, he releases her. In the ending payoff, 18 years later, when Rosaura dies, Tita and Pedro are finally free to marry. They retire together to their own intimate, private consummation. But when, in the throes of passion, Pedro dies of a heart attack, Tita must decide whether to live on or join him in death. She burns up her own life and with it the whole ranch, leaving only her cookbook, which her grandniece recovers, though she can never replicate the magic of great aunt Tita's cooking. He dies of a heart attack. Oh, total spoiler. It's very vivid. <laughs> Survive. <laughs> oh, I'm having the worst case of FOMO right now, I have to tell you. Okay. <laughs> um, and as far as screen adaptations go, how does Like Water for Chocolate stack up? Well, it proves that a, a novel, a wonderful novel that has some bad movie qualities can still become a pretty good film. But the novel, as usual, is better. First of all, it will surprise no one to learn that I do think the novel is considerably better than the movie. And of course, I'm going to talk about why that is. But there's an important caveat. The movie, as originally released in Latin America, ran 123 minutes, while the version that we had available, at least some of us had available to watch, was cut to 102. And many of the user reviews that I looked at on Amazon comment that key scenes they remember from the original were missing in this streaming versions. So... That shortened version is all we had to work with, and that's what we'll work with here. And it's all the more reason to go read the book, which is much funnier, much more beautiful, and much clearer. Just to get it out of the way, the movie never explains its own title, probably because it's a common expression in Spanish, but it's clear enough in the novel. The best explanation I found for this unusual title was this one from Sparknotes. In The Science of Cooking, heat is a force to be used precisely. The novel's title phrase, like water for chocolate, refers to the fact that water must be brought to the brink of boiling several times before it is ready to be used in the making of hot chocolate. However, the heat of emotions cannot be so controlled. Heat is a symbol for desire and physical love throughout the text. Now, we can't approach this story, the film or the novel, without understanding that we are in magical realism territory. Leslie's going to go into this more deeply, but I'll just say here, magical realism differs from other types of fantasy in being set in an ordinary world where magical elements are layered in without explanation. It often asks the reader to let go of conventional exposition, the expected plot structure, linear time, and even reason in order to enter into a state of heightened awareness of life's mysteries. Magical realism almost always has a political element too. The style arose in politically and economically marginalized Latin American countries, and Salman Rushdie characterized it as expressing a genuinely third world consciousness. In the case of Like Water for Chocolate, the political element is domestic, the power of social conventions and expectations for women versus women's passion and sensuality. Now, in our episode on If Beale Street Could Talk, I introduced the seven qualities your novel should not have if you want it to read like a smooth, easy Hollywood movie. Here they are again in the form of what I will call the Hollywood don'ts. Number one, if you want your novel to read like a smooth, easy movie, don't write more than 300 pages, but don't go under 15,000 words. Like Water for Chocolate, the novel comes in at a tidy 246 pages and around 75,000 words. So Laura Esquivel, the author who began as a screenwriter, gets a checkmark here. Number two, don't mess with the three-act structure of a beginning, a middle, and an end, because that's how movies are built. And that's what readers of popular movie-like novels expect. Like Water for Chocolate, as I've said, has a four-act structure and is a bit lopsided as to the story math. It's divided into 12 chapters from January through December, each 
headed with a recipe. I'd give it half a check mark for the four act structure, which you could compress into a three act if you really wanted to look at it that way. Number three, don't rely on your unique authorial voice or style to deliver your message and don't depend on tones such as sarcasm or irony. That type of strictly literary textual stuff does not translate to the screen. Esquivel's novel, with its recipes and its narrative discussions of food, is entirely idiosyncratic, and it completely fails this test. Number four, don't lean heavily on literary allusions, philosophical ideas, or abstract meditations. None of that is story per se, and it is unfilmable. Like Water for Chocolate is filled with little philosophical musings in the narrative, so it hugely fails this criterion. I'm going to read you a little example from the end of the March chapter. It goes like this. Those huge stars have lasted for millions of years by taking care never to absorb any of the fiery rays lovers all over the world send up at them night after night. To avoid that, the star generates so much heat inside itself that it shatters the rays into a thousand pieces. Any look it receives is immediately repulsed, reflected back onto the earth, like a trick done with mirrors. That is the reason the stars shine so brightly at night. Now, this may not be formal philosophy. This and many passages like it in the text are more like mythology, building up the magical realism. They give the novel much of its charm, and they simply don't cross to the screen. I'm also saddened to report that this is the kind of thing that gets cut in abridged audiobooks, which I never buy except by accident, which I did in this case. Number five, don't make symbolism the heart of your story. If stripping symbols out would break your story, you are not writing cinematically. Like Water for Chocolate is almost all symbolism. The recipes are symbolic. The food made from them is symbolic. The links between food, love, and life go several layers deep, and the novel completely fails this test. Number six, don't use a first-person narrator or a complex combination of points of view. Like Water for Chocolate uses a framing narrative, which is told in first person by a descendant of the protagonist, Tita. Within that first person frame, the point of view isn't simple. It's omniscient and often speaks directly to the reader in almost a second person instructive voice like a cookbook. The film accordingly does depend heavily on voiceover and still has to leave out most of the cooking. And finally, number seven, don't rely on detailed historical information to make your story work. Movies that lay on too much historical realism apparently tend to lose sight of the story. Now, Like Water for Chocolate gets a pass on this one because it, it is set on the Mexico-Texas border during the Mexican Revolution, which lasted from about 1910 to 1917. The historical realism here lies primarily in the way of life on the ranch rather than in the larger history of the revolution. and it we get a lot of looks at the elaborate recipes. Now, the revolutionary forces do play an important role in this story, and they take a little bit of explaining, which the film doesn't have time to do, but still, it, we get the idea in the film. So the novel works as a film in that regard. Now, I hope it's clear that I am not advising novelists to follow these rules. As I said in our Beale Street episode, do follow them if your whole goal in writing is to create a smooth, easy-to-follow, undemanding story for the broadest possible target readership. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that as a writing goal and absolutely nothing wrong with a novel that accomplishes it. But, and you knew there was a but coming, right? Breaking these rules is exactly what makes the original version of Like Water for Chocolate so good and so truly madly deeply a novel. The film does its best to hint at most everything important in the book. It was, after all, written by the novelist herself. She keeps whole sections of dialogue and hits all the main plot points. There's no doubt that the visuals of the film, the ranch, the landscape, the costumes, add detail that she chose not to spend time on in the novel. So, for example, it was interesting to see what a dovecote looks like in the movie because I'd never seen one before. But in the novel, we do get the detail that this dovecote is reached by a 20-foot ladder and a tiny door. And when John finds Tita there, she's covered in pigeon droppings and feathers. I had no trouble picturing it. The novelist Esquivel gave and withheld details with great deliberation, while the screenwriter Esquivel had to eliminate much of what gave the story its charm 
in order to do what a screenplay has to do, which, as Robert McKee says, is to make the mental physical. The screenplay tries to preserve the humor of the novel, but I'm sorry, there is just no cinematic way to replicate the horrible hilarity of Rosaura's death by flatulence. While reading the novel, I at least laughed out loud. Let's have a listen. Pedro didn't find it odd that he could hear Rosaura breaking wind even with the door closed. He began to notice the unpleasant noises when one lasted so long it seemed it would never end. Pedro tried to concentrate on the book he was holding, thinking that drawn-out sound could not possibly be the product of his wife's digestive problems. The floor was shaking. The light blinked off and on. Pedro thought for a moment it was the rumble of cannons signaling that the revolution had started up again, but he discarded the thought. It had been too calm in the country lately. Maybe it was the engine of one of the neighbor's motor cars, but motor cars didn't produce such a nauseating smell. Now, the beat continues for a whole other page, giving a family recipe for abating bad smells and a description of poor Rosaura's funeral. In the film, this is compressed to a slightly embarrassing fart and Pedro waving incense around the room to clear the air. It simply doesn't convey the combination of humor, fantasy, love, and food, and death that the novel is built on. Now, in this film, this and so many other scenes were like reminders of the novel, kind of like the Cliff Notes version of the book. But while watching it, I was constantly aware that someone who hasn't read the novel first would feel lost. As just one example, the film doesn't give us enough time with Nacha, the grandmotherly cook who plays such a large role in Tita's life, as we're going to go into a little bit more with Jari's section. And she dies at the first act break. In the book, we have time to get to know her both through her words and actions and through narrative exposition, that one thing the movie can't do. So we feel her death rather than just witnessing it. And we feel Tita's loss and fully understand her decision to become the ranch's cook when marriage to Pedro is denied her. This happens over and over in the film, and it's certainly responsible for a lot of people's sense that it's a bit confusing or unsatisfying. You'd have to watch the film several times to pick up all the tiny hints that are more fleshed out and and clearer and just more accessible in the novel. So what's the takeaway for novelists? Read more books. You can't depend on films alone to provide your framework. Films are, and we are going to keep saying this, a perfectly good shorthand way to study global story structure and hone your story analytical skills. If you can watch a dozen films and generate three statements that cover the whole story spine of each of them, as we always try to do here on the roundtable, you'll be building a powerful skill that's going to serve you well in your writing. But you can't really learn to write better novels just on the basis of a good story spine. It's necessary but not sufficient. To become good writers, we need to read. We need to read great books, hard books, interesting books, favorite books, books we aren't necessarily attracted to, books that are outside our comfort zone. It even pays sometimes to read bad books. We need to invest in reading, sometimes money, but mostly time, energy, and curiosity. Like Water for Chocolate is a great masterwork novel to study if you're interested in how to convey highly specific cultural details in your story, if you'd like to understand magical realism, if you have a story to tell in the society domestic genre, if your story involves the liberation of women's spirit and sexuality, if you love food-centered stories, if you want to study best uses of symbolism, if you write historical fiction, and of course, if you're writing a forbidden love story. Go ahead and watch the movie. As I say, it's the Cliff Notes version, and it's beautiful to look at. But then go read the novel. It is a joy. Death by flatulence. Now I'm really worried about my dog. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) I am missing so much not watching the movie. And this is just a thing here for anyone listening. If you listen to these episodes without having watched the movie, I can already tell you, you are missing so much because I know I'm missing so much here. Um, All righty, Kim, you're going to talk to us a bit more about the genre. What have you got for us? So I want to talk about the multiple genres at play here. So 
like a rich and complex recipe, like Water for Chocolate has multiple genres combining to make a rich and complex story. It's not a mashup. It's a layer cake. So let's talk about the external genres. Externally, we have love courtship and society domestic happening. We have love courtship between Tita and Pedro, and we have society domestic between Tita and her mother, and it's really that tradition of the youngest daughter not being allowed to marry and has to take care of her mother until the day she dies. But love is really the global story. Now, how do we know that? Well, we can look at the core event. We can look at the life values at stake, specifically across the 15 core scenes, and we can look at the core emotion that the audience experiences. Now, the core event for a society story is the revolution scene, when the power changes hands. This moment for Tita and her mother comes when Tita banishes her mother's ghost. And this happens at the end of the middle build with 25 minutes to go left in the film. Now, the core event for a love story is the proof of love, which I kind of am wobbling here a little bit, but I'm really going to say that it's the final scene of the film where Pedro dies during their lovemaking after he proclaims his love for Tita loud and clear, which he's never been able to do. And then he dies and then Tita consumes the matches to join him. I'm going to have some notes about the life values across the spine in the show notes, but the core motion here for society would be, you know, empowerment and revolution, which we certainly do feel. And then the core motion for a love story is going to be romance, which we also feel. And honestly, I'm not sure which one I feel more of in the story. We can certainly see aspects of both genres, but ultimately, if we ask ourselves what the story is about, it's about love. The meta meaning here seems to be that love triumphs when the lovers endure despite all that divides them. In this case, that would be family, tradition, other marriages, time, forces beyond this world. So we're going to come back to this in just a minute. So let's shift and look at the internal genre. This is another intriguing aspect of like Water for Chocolate. What exactly is the internal genre here? Tita is certainly our protagonist. And so when we look at Friedman's framework, we're going to be looking at it for her. We look at her character, thought, and fortune at the beginning of the story, and then her character, thought, and fortune at the end of the story. And here, really, from the outset, I was tracking a status story for Tita. We are signaled by the misfortune that she faces from her mother that only increases over the course of the story. And my natural optimism had me convinced this would be status sentimental. You know, it's kind of like a Cinderella story, right? Where we have this protagonist of low standing and misfortune who rises to good fortune and success, success meaning achieving her goal with the help of mentors and others. The mentors really stood out to me in the story as well, and they are an essential ingredient to a positive status story and happily ever after. But happily ever after isn't exactly what happened. So Let's just look here at that main convention of a status story. We must have a strong mentor figure. And here we have Nacha, who is the strong mentor who passes on the kitchen magic to Tita, and she continues to exist even beyond the grave, right? She's advising her on what to do and how to save Pedro and all of these things. We also have Gertrudis, who isn't so much a mentor, but is still a voice of reason and is a sister, an ally, and is a helper for the love story. And we also have John, who is the doctor that helps rescue her and save her after her heartbreak of losing baby Roberto. Without these things, Tita would not have survived, not really. And then in the obligatory scenes, we have the core event of a status story, which is when the protagonist chooses to do what's necessary to attain status, right, to attain their definition of success, or reject the world that they strive to join. What's interesting here is we see that Tita refuses John's hand in marriage, and she waits instead for a time in the future when she could freely be with Pedro, which is after Rosado's death and Esperanza's marriage. The other obligatory scene is that the protagonist will save or lose herself based on their action in the core event. What's interesting here is that Tita denies John because that does not align with her true moral code of saving herself for Pedro forever because that's her true love. And they do end up getting to be together after all. Rosara dies and Esperanza is married, but then Pedro dies. And that moment, she kind of chooses again, what is she going to do? Is she going to do what's necessary to gain love and stay with Pedro even in death or continue to live without him? And this is where she chooses to die instead. 
And so here it really does feel like it's the opposite of selling out, right? She commits to love for life and death. But it feels closer to a status tragic ending because we have this ending life value that's death, which is really tragic. We want them to be together. We want them to get to continue to live their lives together, have a baby, all of those things. That audience experience, right? How do we feel about the story is something that Norman Friedman geniusly included in his appraisal of internal genres because a story never exists in a vacuum. It's designed for communication. It's by, for, and about the human experience. So part of me has to look at how do I feel at the end of the story? How does the audience feel? Do we have a tragic experience or do we have that sentimental experience, which is relief? In a spreadsheet that Leslie and I created for Internal Genres Part 1, which we call the internal elements, we have all of the internal genres broke down there and the kind of protagonist you need and the way the story ends and all that kind of stuff, which I've looked at it. But again, it feels like we're writing this strange line in between these genres. And it even has aspects of admiration, right, where a character doesn't change and they maintain their moral code despite everything. So I'm confident it's a status story. But when it comes to subgenre, I am a little at, at a loss. And ultimately, is this story cautionary or prescriptive? And again, it feels like this wonderfully strange mix. It feels cautionary for societies that would create and maintain obstacles that would keep lovers apart. And it feels prescriptive in a way for lovers who would endure despite all circumstances, even death. Okay, so let's kind of put all this together and see where we where we land. Anne mentioned the interplay of social conventions and expectations for women versus women's sensuality and desire. That combination is really what the Virgin's Promise archetypal framework is based on. The Virgin's Promise has this baked-in society story because it is about a revolution at home. But that doesn't mean that society is global. Virgin Promise stories aren't automatically global society stories, but society is often a backdrop. Something I've noticed in the last several months while I've been working with clients is that there are almost always multiple genres in play in any story. They may be the global external genre plus the companion internal genre or vice versa. There can be multiple subplots, arcs for the supporting characters, and then something I've been starting to think of as the setting genre. It's less overt, it's more underlying, and it's so interwoven that it's difficult to extract it from the rest of the story. It colors, or in this case, flavors, everything. It's as if this interwoven genre acts as a convention. That's a setting and a means of turning the plot. Basically, it's the specific setting and circumstances that allow the global story to occur. This setting genre is not the global story, but the global story couldn't take place without it, at least not in the same way, not in a way that would be recognizable as the same story. For example, in Like Water for Chocolate, without that society domestic genre in play, that is that mother's oppressive reign over Tita, her love and marriage to Pedro would never have been forbidden. And the story would have ended in act one. In this case, the society genre is a harmer, which we can see is a standard convention for forbidden love stories like Romeo and Juliet and Brokeback Mountain. Sean has often said that genre is in the eye of the beholder. One person's crime story is another person's society story. For example, see our analysis of Thelma and Louise. Largely, what we bring to the story, the lens that we use to experience it, shades our interpretation. And many of these lenses are subconscious. This is precisely the reason we must choose a global genre. It is the act of choosing, and in turn executing with intention, that makes it a story. Now, there's no wrong answer unless you don't make an active choice and stick to it. But the choices do produce different results. So it's imperative to know thyself and the essence of what matters to you most about your story, your premise, your idea. Then you can make choices that preserve, support, and strengthen that intent. Your global genre choice will shine a light and magnify your big meta why. And Like Water for Chocolate is a great example of this. It really is. And I was feeling status too, though I didn't take the time to analyze it because I knew you would. I'm glad that you did the deep dive into it. We're so used to love stories that rest on an internal worldview arc for the protagonist lover. I'm wondering if it could be that the status internal genre just sits uneasily with a story about true love and that that's what makes this love story feel so unusual. It seems to me that there are societies and time periods where marriage is more bound to status 
than to love. That is where marriages are arranged for the good of the community, and the consideration of the couple's romantic gratification really isn't in the mix. And in those times and places, the capital R romantic ideal is in conflict with social norms. Clearly, it seems to me here in Like Water for Chocolate, the romantic ideal is hard at work, but the fact is it's the external circumstances, not the internal views of the lovers, that needed to change in order for Tita and Pedro to be together. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about it like that. I've noticed that in love courtship stories, the internal genre combination for the lovers is often where one will experience worldly maturation and then the other would experience something else. You know, it might be morality, it might be another worldview story, or it often could be a status story. So I think depending on whether the love story ends positively or negatively will dictate what that secondary genre is. And so I think that is something that's specifically interesting in like Water for Chocolate is that both lovers seem to be facing a status arc. But again, I'm having a tricky time telling if it's positive or negative. This is shining a light on why it's so important for us all to do this kind of deliberate study. Watch a bunch of movies and just figure out what the global genre is. Because that's the first question we have to answer, right? And we've got all these tools that Kim just talked about, core event, the core motion, and so on. Oh, I just love this stuff. Okie dokie. Jari, you're up. Yeah, it looks like we've been talking about a lot of love. So uh, I'm kind of glad that we got to see this movie as well. And just to harp on a little bit the points that both Anne and Kim made regarding the uh, worldview maturation or status. This is a really tricky one. And it, I, I think this is part of the reason why it was a little confusing for me. Because typically in a love story, the worldview maturation internal genre happens because either one or more of the lovers are still alive. And in this case, since they're both gone, it feels more like, you know, they've made the ultimate sacrifice. So, you know, no, maybe that's a little bit in the mix as well. And I think why I'm a little confused. So I, I really appreciate that dive into the in internal. But for Like Water for Chocolate, for this one, I'm going to look at the love story conventions of opposing forces and moral weight, because those seem to be the strongest of the conventions at play here, especially for Tita and Pedro, which I think is the main love story. Right from the start, we get the declaration that Tita, the youngest daughter of the widower, Mama Elena, will never marry because as the youngest girl, she must take care of her mother until her mother dies. And this is repeated twice within the first 10 minutes of the movie. So clearly, society's putting something on Tita. This sets up the main opposing force for Tita and Pedro, who both have confessed their love for each other rather quickly. Now, you may wonder... Why well, don't consider Mama Elena a harmer in this? While she clearly is harming Tita's chances to be with Pedro, she embodies the main opposing force of, and this is a quote from her, not for generations has anyone in this family questioned the traditions and my daughter won't be the first. So that's the big society pressure. And that's a pretty powerful opposing force with some moral weight mixed in just to make you feel the crushing lack of hope for Tita and Pedro. Then that crushing lack of hope becomes final when Pedro agrees to marry Tita's older sister, Rosaria. As Pedro and his father are walking away, Pedro reveals that the only way to be close to, to his true love, Tita, is to marry Rosarita. Now the fun begins with all this, right? Because this is a rather strange twist in a love story like, oh, I love this woman, but I'm just going to marry her sister to be with her. And that fight against the opposing forces that's keeping Tita away from Pedro is in her cooking, which consumes those that eat it with the visceral feelings that she has. So you can feel not only in her words and what she looks like, but other people react to it. And I guess it should come as no surprise that when her nephew is taken from her, he dies. And the grief over his death just sends Tita into this deep despair that leaves her mute and in the care of Dr. Brown, which uh, it seems that even Tita is not immune from her own powers. And then, of course, we've got the love story between Dr. Brown and Tita. It gets a little confusing. And so you see this battle between tradition and the heart. And its central theme of the movie, told in this, as we've all been talking about, this magical realism style that some critics have put in the category of magical feminism. Magical feminism was coined by Patricia Hart in 1987 when she described the book, The House of the Spirits. I'm not really familiar with this, so I had to look it up. 
the definition from Wikipedia is the term magical feminism refers to magical realism in the feminist discourse. Magical realism's basic assumption is the coexistence and effective merging of contradictory worldviews, the scientific and rational with the spiritual in the magical. And then it goes on to say, uh, Kimberly Ann Wells claims that the most important feature of this genre is the presence of a female magic user, most commonly a witch or a shamaness, metaphorically representing the female protest against the male-dominated world, and then a final act of independence, which is, seems like a virgin's promise story as well. So, Anne, I, I know you mentioned something about this above, and the reason I ask is that I'm trying to sort out this opposing forces moral weight of Mama Elena, who seems to be the manifestation of the male-dominated world order. So what do you think about Like Water for Chocolate being of the magical feminism style? Well, it's a good question, and there's a couple things I want to say about it. It's barely there in the movie, but in the book it's much clearer. Two days after Tita's birth, her father dies of a heart attack. This echoes how her lover eventually dies at the end. He dies of a heart attack because he has just learned that he wasn't, in fact, the biological father of the middle daughter, Hertrudis. Mama Elena goes into shock at the sudden death of her husband, and because of that shock, is unable to feed her newborn, Tita. So it falls to Nacha, who is the real witch or magical figure, to find ways of feeding the infant using magical knowledge of food, because there's no wet nurse to be had. Tita is literally suckled and weaned on kitchen magic and embodies it herself in a direct transmission from female practitioner or shamaness to female pupil. Now, as to female protest against the male-dominated world order, I would not say that Mama Elena represents the male-dominated world order except insofar as she represents her own repression. It's quite a bit clearer in the book that Mama Elena faces down a band of revolutionaries who come to raid, rape, and pillage on the ranch, and she earns their respect, and they leave peacefully after she deals with them. She is no pushover for men. Now, she may have become a fairly horrible human being because of the cost of her own marital indiscretions, but she's not weak and she's not male-directed. Even Tita eventually forgives her a little bit in the end. So there's plenty of women's magic and women's power in this story throughout. Got it, got it. So then Nacha passes down the power to Tita, and this power revealed through her cooking is the manifestation of the rebellion against the opposing forces that are keeping her and Pedro apart. So Tita is almost noble in this fight, it seems, but she does punish her rival to drive, I'm assuming, Pedro to her. I mean, it's an interesting way to show that Tita will comply in certain ways, but not in other ways, or rather, it's hard for her to follow the rules that were laid down by her mother and society. I'm not exactly sure what real lessons to take away from Like Water for Chocolate in terms of writing a better love story. I mean, it has all the elements, we've all talked about them, that a love story needs, but I found the magical realism for me distracting from the love story and the main message. I I do like the meal scenes since it shows the love and longing that Tita has for Pedro. You see that, and that's innovative, I think, and something to consider when writing how the opposing forces make the lovers feel. So the magical realism was distracting from the love story for you. Okay, now I'm really curious because to me, that just sounds fantastic. I'm like, forget the movie. I'm just reading this book. (laughs) I think I need to read the book. Treat yourself. And may I just give you the caveat that if you are an audiobook user rather than reading, which I think is perfectly legitimate, there are two versions on Audible. One of them is abridged, although read by a Mexican reader who pronounces all the names right. One of them is unabridged and read by an American reader. Okay, good to know. Sold. Leslie, I know you're going to talk to us more about the reality genre and magical realism. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. Okay. Well, if you wandered into like water for chocolate, not knowing what to expect, you probably felt surprised by a lot of the events. In particular, for example, when Tita's tears in the wedding cake made the guests cry and throw up. This clue, and of course others, told me I was in the realm of magical realism. So it's a great opportunity to talk a little bit about stories like this. Now up front, let me say, I've read several magical realism novels and short stories from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 
uh, Jorge Luis Borges and Salman Rushdie. But I'm not an expert, and this is not in any way a comprehensive treatment of magical realism. This is just a taste along with a couple of observations. Magical realism is very different from fantasy in a lot of ways, and Anne talked about some of those earlier. Now, how do we account for this in the story grid tools? Well, we look at the reality genre leaf of the five-leaf clover. Of course, we normally focus on the content genres, but that's only one of five types of genres. So for a quick review, a genre is a label that tells the reader or the audience what to expect. Genres simply manage audience expectations. And our mentor, Sean Coyne, goes on to say, we all know what to expect from a mystery novel, a love story, or an action movie. These categories tell us what we're in for when we pick up a book or go to the movies or the theater. But what are those buried specific expectations that must be satisfied before a story lands with us? What do we expect to know about a story before we'll even consider listening or reading or watching it? Now, again, we talk a lot about the content genres, which give us the general content of the story. But another important type of genre is how far we have to suspend disbelief. And that is the subject of what Sean calls the reality genres. The broad categories include the following. Factualism, which are stories that refer to facts of history or biography. It's fiction, but it suggests this story did happen. Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel is a great example of this. In realism, we have stories that could have happened but are imagined. Contemporary, realistic stories like those written by Ian Rankin or historical stories like those written by Jane Austen. Absurdism takes us into stories that are not even remotely real. And Sean gives the example of the Looney Tunes cartoons here. Finally, Fantasy are stories of wonder and imagination that require comprehensive suspension of disbelief. There are multiple subgenres and sub-subgenres, including magical stories and science fiction. Think Lord of the Rings or Star Wars here. Now, what we think of as magical realism seems to be a combination of hyper-realism, including the details of mundane existence, with elements of the absurd, rather than residing within the fantasy subgenre. We see magical realism in stories like The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Garden of Forking Paths by Jorge Luis Borges, and Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Novelist John Evans explains in a post on Tor.com the basic differences between fantasy and magical realism, and this article is a great place to start. He says, Fantasy magic is systematic. There are rules, if implicit, dictating who can perform it and what it can do and how. Magic is extraordinary, supernatural, paranormal, anything but quotidian, and the staggering implications of its existence are explored and illustrated. Well, he goes on to explain that in magical realism, the magic is random, chaotic, surreal, of no lasting consequence to any but those who experience it. And all these supernatural events are told in the same casual, matter-of-fact tone used to describe lunches and money problems. So what accounts for the difference? What are we getting at? According to Evans, it is the time and place when these stories arose, as well as the function they serve. What does the magic do in the story? 
He says, surreal fantasy is more celebrated partly because by its nature, it tends to use magic mostly to illuminate and explore its characters. But more importantly, surreal fantasy, far more than systematic, is about the real struggles of our world. So if you think about it, absurdism comes from the conflict between our attempt to make sense of the world and the reality that sometimes chaos reigns and life doesn't make any sense. We see magical realism arise particularly in places where so much of life doesn't make sense, especially in post-colonial nations like Nigeria, Colombia, and Argentina. So similar to stories that break linear structure, they have a point beyond the narrative dream and they need to pull the reader out of the story just far enough that they get it, that they can pick up on the clues. So what's the practical takeaway for writers here? Here's the big one. Story elements come from somewhere. They aren't usually random. So if you're considering a magical realism story, do so with an understanding of where these stories come from and what they're meant to do. Now, if you've never considered writing a fantasy or magical realism story, why might you want to read like Water for Chocolate or a similar story? And my answer is to make a more conscious decision about your reality genre. The choices we make here are important, and they can support or undermine the story and the message we want to send. Stories that are way outside our experience and the typical genres we read help us identify elements we might miss, and they also help us innovate. For example, the French classes I took in high school did as much or more for my understanding of English grammar than the English classes I took. It's just easier to see when looking at it from a different angle. So we need to read widely and try stories we wouldn't normally read. I know we're going on and on about this today, but it is really important. And I suggest looking at the decisions the writer has made ask ourselves, what effect do these decisions have on the story and me as a reader? Ask ourselves why the writer made these decisions. Now, we may not find something we can apply right away, but we'll deepen our knowledge and experience of story. And as storytellers, that's pretty vital. Leslie, this is amazing. Thank you. Now, you mentioned Tor.com there. I know you're going to put a link to that in the show notes, but anyone who is not already subscribed to Tor.com should do that when you're finished listening to this episode. <laughs> okay, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us through Twitter from Scott Lyman. He writes, I would love to hear a podcast devoted to the plays of Chekhov, in particular, The Cherry Orchard. There are several decent film adaptations, the best of which I think is the 1999 version starring Charlotte Rampling. The Cherry Orchard is where Chekhov's unique mixture of social satire and tragedy is most complex and most complete. I would be particularly interested in hearing how you might analyze a multi-protagonist narrative. Okay, Leslie, I think you have an answer for Scott. I do. Thanks so much for the suggestion, Scott. What I would say is that because Chekhov's plays speak to you, I want to wholeheartedly encourage you to analyze your favorite ones. Now, this is not to dodge the work. If you've been listening for any length of time, you know we're not afraid of a little mental elbow grease. The main reason I encourage you to tackle this is that you won't gain the same understanding unless you get in there and wrestle with the material yourself. We analyze stories on the podcast that are useful to us in our work as writers and editors. So we choose stories that others might not, and it might take us a long time to get to the ones you're most interested in. But the value for listeners of the roundtable isn't that we provide the answer key to the story grid test, I've got news for you. There really isn't a test. But what we offer is to show you how writers and editors like us analyze stories. 
Now, it's important because, as you may have noticed, we don't all see a particular story the same way. The story grid method includes tools that are objective in nature, but your subjective point of view is vital. The stories that speak to us do so for a certain reason, and to understand it, we need to find that for ourselves. What are the objective elements that, when combined with our subjective experience, helps us express the story we want to share? Now, don't be afraid of getting it wrong. Sometimes you will. We certainly have. The process is the point, and the results will take care of themselves if you embrace the work. Now, in terms of how to analyze a multi-protagonist narrative, for the big picture, I suggest breaking down the 15 key scenes for each protagonist. That alone will give you lots of insight about how the actions of the characters contribute to the story and express different aspects of the controlling idea or theme. If you want to go deeper, track the movement of each character on the scene level. You can add columns to the spreadsheet to track the life value shift and polarity shift for each protagonist in each scene. You might find some other element to track that's particularly relevant to your story, and that's fantastic. I really encourage you to think of the StoryGrid spreadsheet as your utility belt and add the tools you need to analyze your masterwork and your own story. Thank you, Leslie. And if you have a question about writing a novel that would or wouldn't make a great movie or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast, and leaving us a voice message. Alrighty, folks, that wraps it up for this week. Fantastic discussion. I just wish I was part of it. <laughs> Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Kim for your excellent editorial insights into Like Water for Chocolate. I hope their discussion has given you a better grasp for the unique properties of novels that you might want to consider building into your own stories. You can find links and full scap for like water for chocolate and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review, and please tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time as Leslie continues her epic look at epic scale action stories with the epicest epic of them all, <laughs> The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Why not give it a look during the week? I know I have access to this one and follow along with us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.